0: One, two, three.
1: Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that turns our guests into their own best storytellers using the power of musical memories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Al Holland. Al is a musician. He's a native of Detroit. He started his musical career in classical music with his principal instrument being the violincello, T-I-L, violoncello. Al's played in many orchestras, including the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, the Highland Park Chamber Orchestra, and the Windsor Symphony. Then he decided to try something different, so he chose the keyboards as his new major instrument, which led him to join the show band Attraction in 1970. He also spent many years touring with the Platters as an acclaimed vocalist and keyboard player. These days he lives in southwest Florida, up in the 941, if I'm not mistaken. I've gotten to watch Al interact with the world from up in the booth during the Fort Myers Film Festival's TGIM Monday events for the past seven years, during which he regularly shows off his powers of perception, compassion, and humor. I've wanted to get him in this studio since we conceived of this show, so let's go. Hey there, Al Holland. How you doing? Hey, Mike. How are you? It is really such a pleasure, I want to reiterate, to see you someplace other than the Sydney and Burn Davis Arts Center or the Barber B. Man Performing <laughs> Arts Hall. The acoustics are <laughs> a little better in here, I think. Yeah, know? yeah, they absolutely <laughs> are.
0: Um, okay, well, let's get right to this. So where did it all start for you? Where did music begin in your life? Ooh. Well, my mother was a music teacher. She was a music and arts elementary teacher. My father was an administrator. Uh, He was a counselor and then became an assistant principal in the Detroit public school system. And my mother used to receive instruments because the school board would send them when the school board was actually supporting live music. And the first instrument I ever played was a French horn. Hmm. I learned to play green sleeves on it. And every instrument she would bring into the house, I would just pick up and just naturally tool around with it. So these were not lessons. This was just, no, this was just po- me poking around. just me. Just me. Matter of fact, I've had a total of maybe about two years' worth of honest lessons from instructors over the course of my career. Hmm. Yeah. So, so what was the
1: musical background of
0: your childhood? Uh,
1: was was there music being – well, presumably there was music being played around you on records and things like
0: that? Well, of course, my mother belonged to the Columbia Record Club. OK. And she was a pianist anyway. So the very first real serious piece of music that I heard was uh, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Mm-hmm. And she would play that all the time. Eventually, I picked up on it. Um fur lease, those are the things mm-hmm. that, that I heard in my household all the time. So I had a great background with Bernstein and, and Shostakovich and 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 Arthur Fiedler and all these guys that were you know, I had no idea who they were at the sure, time. Sure, sure. But I learned that those were some of the greats. So
1: that's uh, classical music. What about popular music? Was there that, popular that music, around?
0: I, 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 well, I, I was in Detroit. So well, that's what I'm trying to angle toward. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed Motown. I didn't really play Motown except in sessions where they had strings involved. But pretty much I had music on every corner. It was a great thing. The, the, they talk about the Temptations and the Supremes and the Four Tops. And those are all street groups. right? When they first started out, then Barry picked them up. And next thing you know, they're going around the world doing the same thing that they've been doing sitting in Detroit. Were you aware of what was happening uh, musically or were you more just focused on classical music? I was focused more on classical music because that was a, that was a stronger love for me. than than pop music. And as far as pop music goes, Motown was pretty much Motown and the Atlantic record system with Aretha Franklin and people like that. Those are the ones that I paid attention to more because those are all hometown products. Right, right. What is the earliest musical memory you can recall? Like as
1: the youngest, if you try to, not necessarily playing an instrument or just something musical that stuck into
0: your early childhood brain. My goodness. (laughs) <laughs> we lived in the two-family flat in Detroit. My grandmother, my mother's mother and father were downstairs and we were upstairs. And again, the French horn, I took it out into the hallway down for the staircase and played it in there. And just something about the sound of it just appealed to me. I, I can't really pinpoint exactly what the thought was, but it just appealed to me. The the sound of the instrument, the 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 melodies that the instrument could produce and i was producing it mm-hmm. which was an amazing thing to me because all i did was just put two lips together and blow
1: hmm. <laughs> was there was there anything about the way the french horn looks i mean if if there's a french if there's a musical instrument that looks like a spaceship <laughs>
0: it might oh, be yeah. the french horn <laughs> well it, 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 it ruined my life because after playing french horn then i learned i had to stick my fist inside of it to keep it muted and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff once I got into high school, um, because of the the natural way that I picked up instruments, my band teacher – I was playing cello in high school. But my band teacher decided that he wanted to have a marching band. Mm. So he decided that I need to go play a sousaphone.
1: OK. That's like the tuba-ish it's, thing. It's the biggest <laughs> tuba-ish. OK. And, it was, and at
0: the time, there was no such thing as fiberglass. It was brass. Right. So – and uh, – Really, my father had the car, so we didn't have a car to go back and forth. So I was on the public bus system with the sousaphone. phone. Oh, All you right. were that kid. Oh, yeah. yeah. In Detroit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and and the neighborhood paid attention to it, but they left me alone. Yeah? They, they left me alone because they realized I wasn't doing what they were doing. I was just doing me. Huh. And uh, – <laughs> Once I picked up the Sousa phone, I just – one major memory that comes back is, is a football game. I think it was a homecoming game that year. So we're talking 73, 72, and our field was a mile and a half from the school. So every morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, we would all march down to the field, do our practice, march back to class, and be there by 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, this one morning, it was extremely cold. And I had never understood what people said about putting your tongue to the to the pole. Oh, yeah, like the kid in uh, Christmas story. Exactly. And so the, the the mouthpiece hit my face and it just stuck there. <laughs> and at that point it was like, I don't think I want to do this. No, I got to come that up with better. That was the end of better. your brass instrument career. That was the end. I I can still play a tuba if I have to. Right? But that was the end of that one. Then um actually in junior high school is when I started playing cello because my hands were too big for a violin. Hmm. Did
1: you want to play the violin? Well, you said you started I, I, on a violin. I started
0: on, well, I started on a violin as, a, as, a, as a, the, the instrument of choice at that time. And then in junior high school, my band director said, you're too big for that. I said, okay, well, then what? So I had a difference between playing cello or playing bass, and I chose cello. And it just so happens that in junior high school, one of my – classmates and long-term friend was a guy by the name of Ralph Armstrong, and Ralph was the bass player for John Luke Ponte and and, hmm. and John McLaughlin and Mahavishnu and George Duke and all kinds of people. He's still thriving in Detroit right now, as a matter of fact, hmm. and it, it was a great inspiration because he was a prodigy. He was, I mean, he'd just sit there and... I remember one day he gave me a phone call and said that Rabbi Shankar had sent him a sitar. Oh yeah? And he started playing it. I'm like, Whoa, that's really cool. You know, but I I understood knowing people like that, because they were on the nationwide international scale then, mm-hmm. it gave me an idea that, okay, maybe I can do this. But I never really wanted to do the the hassle of it. I didn't realize that I could make money at it because so, that wasn't my thought process. The thought process is, hey, I'm a classical musician. I'm a cellist. That's what I'm going to be doing. So, you know, but I I, I really enjoy thinking back on those times.
1: When was the first time you made money uh, for a gig of some kind?
0: Good question. I was in oh, – oh, okay. I was at Oakland University doing one of my four years in different schools. yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, I'm on uh, that same team. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, you're going to Oakland? Okay. You're going to Wayne State? Okay, yeah. All right, fine. But I was um, – did a pickup job because I could play keyboards a little bit at the time. And we had a, a – basically it was a paid jam session is what it was for a private party. And that gave me the taste right then because here I am with four guys that I don't know and we're playing songs and we're making really good music. And at that point I said, okay, then maybe there is something to this. And I think I made something like 35 bucks for the the, the four-hour party (laughs) or whatever it was. But that still didn't give me the taste because my love of the instrument, my love of the business always outshined The cost, the thought of making money. The thought of making money came after I got into attraction with the show band, and Mm -hmm. you know, hey, I can make a living at this. Okay, let's let's do that then. Hmm. Somebody's going to pay me for it. Great.
1: Did you ever get any uh, pushback or support from your folks in terms of going down a career of musician?
0: Well, my father passed away in seventy five, so he really didn't get a chance to see a lot of stuff from me. My mother was around till the early nineties late eight, late 89 something like that, and she was able to see me at least play with attraction mm-hmm. uh she never got a chance to see me with the platters mm-hmm. and I what would she have thought of that I think she would have loved it <laughs> I, I'm sure you know she would have loved it because I had two different musical tastes going on in my household right My father had a lot of friends that he went through college with that were part of big bands like Dizzy Gillespie and and Duke Ellington and Count Basie, and he would always look at them on the Ed Sullivan show or something and go like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. My mother was the classical side of things because she was always uh, a proper pianist right so you know you you had the hands curved to an apple and all this kind of stuff and I learned that there is a happy medium somewhere in there <laughs> but that gave me that really gave me my my far-reaching sense of music you know so I can appreciate all kinds of music I really really can hmm. I had, had to I lived in Tulsa Oklahoma for a year and a half and so I grew to appreciate country music didn't say I liked it but I grew to appreciate it because it was during the time of the urban cowboy. Oh right! So this—that's where I it's learned an interesting about, time in the world. It, it right? really was, and <laughs> and living in Oklahoma, it was great because I could put on the leather vest and the cowboy hat and the boots and everything. I like that image. You oh man, was, you got to send uh, us some uh, pictures. I hope there's no pictures.
1: <laughs> <around>. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's let's go to your first song. Okay, what are you? Uh, what what are we playing here?
0: When I first started playing cello, I just thought that it was a dead-end kind of thing. And then I heard this guy. And this guy, he did this particular piece. It was the, Brock, the Bach uh, the Company Suite for Cello, number one. And the artist's name is Pablo Casals.
1: Do you want to tell a story about it? Do you want to set it up in some way?
0: Well— Part of my part of my youth orchestra training came at the home of the Detroit Symphony, and at the time it was Ford Auditorium, and I went to work there in the mail room. So I got a chance to see all kinds of guys, and Pablo Casals came in there. Virgil Fox, Morgan, mm. you know, I, I got a chance to see so many things just because of that job alone, and it just appealed to me. Uh, just the, the fact that he could make this instrument that I'm playing sound like that. And so once I heard it, it I was swept. I was done. I was done.
1: Well, let's hear what what made Al Holland done. <laughs> All right. Let's hear it. Um,
0: uh, this is, uh, well, what Al? Just... Public, it was Pablo Casals. And is the Bach Unaccompanied Suites for Cello, number one. This one was recorded in 1954.
1: So the, does the musician in you see the score or the notes or the finger positions or however it is the musician in you sees things in their head while you're listening to that?
0: All kinds of things are flashing back to me. Uh, actually trying to make the first attempt of playing that that didn't sound so well. Um, I'm, I read – so of course the music's in my head. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I got from that recording in particular was the fact that you can have emotion. It doesn't have to be cut and dried. It didn't have to be boxed in, and you know, this is as far as it's going to go, and that's all you're going to get from it. Different people have different emotions with different types of music. You could have the same piece for one person and play it for 10 people, and they'll all get different reactions from mm-hmm. it. The excitement of it all was the fact that. The instrument could actually do that stuff, right? You know, I just had to learn what to do in order to make it work like that, right? So I guess I I see things I see things in music. I don't I'm I'm not a big lyric person, which is amazing considering how much I sing now. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not really a big lyric person. I'm more of a musician. I just hear the music, feel the music. Love the music. That's just me.
1: So in terms of the emotion that the music contains, you mentioned while we were listening how Yo Yo Ma's version, while he's still playing the same instrument, not the exact same instrument, but right. you know, right. um, it, it, he intones it so much differently. How much of the emotion that is passed through a song comes from the score versus the musician playing it?
0: I had one of my few teachers tell me one thing. He said your head already knows what it wants to do. Your hands already know what it wants to do. So what you do is make sure that your hands are fluent in what it's doing and then your head can explore. And I use that tact now, even to this day, where I really am not thinking about what I'm doing, but I'm thinking about what's going to come ahead. Mm-hmm. Where am I going to take this? How is the, the, the crowd responding to it? Um I, I I I am comfortable in the fact that I know what I'm doing. Right. But I still have time that I can explore and get crazy with it. Right. And that's the thing that I love more than anything else is being um, not so rigid in what I do. I mean, there's bands out there where you can see somebody playing. Uh, I had the time of my life. With the, with uh, the Jennifer Warrens and and uh, Bill Medley, yeah. yeah, yeah, and they'll do it literally at the exact same time every single night. Never wanted to be that guy, right? You know, even when I do shows now, we'll have a song list, and it's pretty much just a complete map of what we want to do. But things change, mm-hmm. people change, audience changes. And you have to pay attention to all that at the same time.
1: How would you uh, do if you picked up a cello and tried to play that right now?
0: Uh, Actually, I wouldn't do too bad. Oh, yeah? I wouldn't do too bad. Uh, About hmm, maybe eight, nine years ago, on a fluke, I was able to go and play with the Charlotte Symphony. Oh, yeah? In Charlotte County, yeah. And maestra, Janita Hawk. She talked me into it. And then eventually I met uh, Francis Wada, who became the next maestro in line. And he had me do Pops concerts because he found out my talent. At one of the Pops concerts, I even started out um, The Platter's Only You on cello.
1: (laughs) And everybody's
0: sitting there looking at me like, wow, he can actually play this. I'm like, I can can get by for about five seconds. (laughs) I'm I'm good. That season, though, that was a tough season because I hadn't really played – Marathon cello. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself getting tired, my arms getting tired because of having to do an hour and a half, two hour performance. And the cello that I had, I borrowed from someplace and it didn't have a long enough end pin. And being that I'm tall, I need that. So I had to put the end pin on on my foot and to to boost it up to the right height that I could play. So it was it was a, it was a difficult year, but it was fun. Huh. Was,
1: uh what instruments do you have at, around the house? Just keyboards just now. Just keyboards. Do you have a piano just, piano or just a I uh,
0: I I have all electronics. Um pretty much gone from synthesizers I don't use to mm-hmm. synthesizers I use all the time. And everything, of course, is scaled down, scaled down. And, and actually, we'll get into that later on because um, that was Rick Wakeman's fault. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, uh, what was the first music you owned? Do you remember?
0: Hmm. Well, we had a great library system in Detroit. So if I need to do a string quartet or anything, I can just go to the library and get the whole complement there. And uh, I think the first piece of music that I actually – well, yeah, Grinnell's Music Store, we – when I couldn't find a piece of music at the library, they were able to usually order it for me from New York or someplace like that. And I think the first one that I really owned was a Saint-Saul cello concerto. Because I wanted to do that. I heard uh, somebody do it and I said, man, that's something else to go through. In the meantime, I'm playing in different orchestras and youth orchestras and, and just involving myself completely. And then I moved to Tulsa. And once I moved to Tulsa, it was it the was end of that chapter moving on to the next chapter. And I got to Tulsa and, and found racism. Um and I knew I was coming in doing what I was doing. What took you to Tulsa? Well, my father's side of the family is from Tulsa. And uh, my grandmother – well, my father passed away first in 75. Then my grandmother passed away and whatever's passed down to her came to us. So we had to go and handle that. So I it, – it was not a choice of mine. It, hmm. it was not like, hey, I want to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> and I got there and – Realized that they hadn't really come up to come to terms with what was going on in today's time, and okay. this is not that better. This is not that late ago. Yeah. I mean, it, it, literally the early seventy nine eighty, mm-hmm. and I went in audition because you know I'm, I'm, I've been a symphonic player for ten years at that point. So I went to the Tulsa Symphony auditions, went in there with a with with a strategy knew I did a great audition, had people telling me, you know, other candidates, oh, you were great, you were great, oh, thank you very much. I received a letter from the Tulsa Symphony, and the letter said that, thank you for coming to audition, but your sound would not make a decent contribution to the section. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that. I'm like, why would you say I'm not, I even had found a luthier, in Tulsa, who built a cello, and I, I had borrowed a cello from him for this audition. So I knew I was— You knew you had the chops, I was on it. I knew the cello. And it's not there. like
1: they had an orchestra that was that much better than any of the ones you'd been a part of.
0: No, but the only thing they didn't have was a full-time member that was black. Right. That was the only thing. And miraculously enough, because of, I guess, my training in Detroit, that's what you don't want? Okay, you, then you don't want that. And I guess they thought I was going to try to start a fight, you know, by you're you're being a racist. uh, No, no, no. There's other stuff out there to do. I was a member of the union, so I didn't have to worry about getting work with it. But miraculously enough, the next year when auditions came around, I was asked to come and audition again. And I said, no, I wasn't going to go through that again. Miraculously enough, they hired a black female violinist that next year, hmm. the very first time in the history of the Tulsa, Tulsa hmm. Symphony. So maybe, maybe I did good. Maybe I opened up a door. I don't know. I, I I didn't do it for that. I just did it for my own musical well-being.
1: Hmm. You uh, you've got a laid back, you know, approach to the world. It seems like to me. Where does that come from? Is that just part of your nature since you were a kid?
0: No, actually, it comes from being on the road and seeing the world in different phases and in different locations and realizing that everybody is still the same. Uh, sociologically, we're going to be different because of our, our upbringing and our, our groups that we hang around. But for the most part, that's the one thing that the Platters taught me more than anything else was the fact that people around the world are the same, completely the same. You might have a different attitude about certain things. You might have a different attitude, men towards women, women towards men. But the end result is that everybody loved the platters. So I I remember being in the Philippines and we're we're walking down the street because we had to get bottled water from the uh, apothecary, Uh, pharmacist for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) And we went and we're walking down the street and there's these guys building a building barefoot, walking on rebar, singing Only You. And because we, we, we heard it and we're like, what? What?" And the guys are pointing at us because I think we're the only black folks in town.
1: Right. And so they heard the us. platters were coming. They saw you and did some math.
0: We had a parade. Wow. <laughs> they what, had
1: a parade. What was that like to have that, you know, because you kind of inherited that. Mm -hmm. mojo, and then you got to wield it for a while. That must have been pretty powerful. I learned
0: not to take advantage of it. That's one thing. And because I needed to be me as part of the whole deal. There was no reason I should change around and put on the sunglasses and, you know, here here it's six o'clock at night and I'm wearing sunglasses because I'm a star. No, no. And I really dislike people that have thought that way. The guys to me who are more enduring are the guys that have been out there for a long, long, long time, and they have nothing to prove to anybody else. And that's what I've come to is the fact that some people are going to like me. Some people are not. If you don't like me, I'm sorry. you know. I, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and either you like it or you don't. Cheers to that, Al Holland. Um, OK. We're moving on to song two. Song two. Ooh, song two. That was during my cello period. And there was two there was two things that made me cognizant of what music could do for people. One thing was the orchestra, this is the Detroit Symphony Youth Orchestra. And the first piece was Alexander Nevsky. And I'm thinking, eh, little did I know that it was a silent film done in the 20s and had that same orchestration. So our our staff, our administrators decided that they were going to have a showing of the 1927 movie oh, so for us so we could see how in it In context, right, right. Oh, it was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. There's there's something in the in Alexander Nevsky where they talk about, you know, raping somebody between two trees. And then they show a picture of the trees and the trees are like about 20 feet apart. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, OK, I don't think that she could stretch that far, but all right, we'll, we'll go for it. But And then there weren't a lot of stunt things going on. So they literally would have horses on ice breaking through the, the ice when they were doing the battle scenes. But the one thing that it did do was impress upon me that music in different forms in different areas can mean different things. As, a proce- as part of that process and because of the youth orchestra upbringing, cellos I, I never thought of as a principal instrument. And then I came across this next piece of music, and we had to do it. And we had eight cellos in the section, and here we are playing the opening to this piece, and nobody else is playing but Mm -hmm. us. I just thought it was the coolest thing. And that would have been Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. The opening section of it just just floored me. I I was done at that point, and I just realized that, yeah, maybe I want to do this for a career. So that was your, your crystallization moment. That was the crystallization moment. That that was the eye-opener. And mm-hmm. at that point, it became, wow, this thing is open. All, I, I, I really had a true classical career set up before I went to Tulsa. And after Tulsa, I had everything changed because of the area changing.
1: Hmm. So geography changed
0: your musical path. Geography changed the musical path, but the, the path was also brought back in line when I got back to Detroit. Hmm. Once I got back there, I realized, hey, there's other things I could possibly do.
1: Hmm. Well, well, we'll get to that after we hear this. This is uh, so. This is uh, a Chicago Symphony Orchestra recording of uh, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, recorded in the early 90s. Ooh.
0: That that piece brings back so many memories. And the best part about that piece for me was not only in the performance of it and watching everybody, 100 people on stage doing their thing and doing individual parts. But what was hilarious for me was that the conductor wanted to have a sense of realism. So what he did was for the cannon shots, he had somebody with a double barrel shotgun firing into an oil drum that was miked. Wow. Well— there's about, what, 13, 14, 15 shots yeah. in that. And by the time we got to the end of the piece, all you could see was gunpowder <laughs> coming out from the back.
1: <laughs> and I'm sure you could smell it. Oh, big time. Just, yeah, that would sound big like it. Big
0: time. <laughs> but, but it it made an impact, though. It, it truly did. I mean, th- that piece, th- th- that that was the one that opened my eyes to, to what classical music can do. That's where the the, the love for a PBS comes to, comes in hmm. because we either lo- listen to the jazz station in Detroit or we listen to the NPR station in mm-hmm. Detroit. And that showed me that there's all kinds of stuff out there that doesn't have to be pop. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't have to have a drum beat. Doesn't right. have to have, you know, It's I'll give it a 10 dick and dance to it, easily dance to it. There's more to it than that. And that's pretty much what that piece did for me.
1: Hmm. Um, What do you think about classical music in the world today? You know, you think that, you know, kids, do you think people are being exposed to it enough? Do you think?
0: No, they're definitely not being exposed to it enough. And I I truly fault the people that are in control of our school systems because there's so many opportunities out there that they're not being allowed to share in because – one of the first things to get cut in any, in any school is the music and arts program. They won't cut sports that fast, but they will definitely cut music and arts. And I was fortunate in the fact that I had teachers that really want to teach music. That's what they were about. That's that was, that was their whole bailiwick and that's what we do. And I, I, I try to carry that on now. I, I really do. Um, example did um, uh, Wonderful World Louis Armstrong mm-hmm. Louis Armstrong I was corrected one day uh, and in doing it there was a lady there with her grandkids and she said you know that song and the kids were like no she said, you heard it at the, the wedding that we went to oh well who did it so I got on the microphone and I said okay all you folks that love Google Google what a Wonderful World, mm-hmm. or Google Louis Armstrong mm-hmm. and see what history is attached to that. And that's kind of where I am now is that there's so many folks that have no idea about where music came from. They think that uh, if they hear they hear a song or they hear a track from a song, oh, that's the greatest song in this, since sliced bread. But that song was also really popular 40 years ago. Yeah, right. You know, in a different form, but the same thing. So yeah. there's no – everything is cyclical. There, there's no such thing as brand new. I was talking to somebody about that the other day because he was saying that, well, you know, uh, trends change. I said, yeah, but you can pretty much figure there's a circle of life of about 30 years where something is popular, then it becomes unpopular. Then 30 years later, hey, let's do it again. Look at television. Look at the MacGyvers they put back out, and and you know, and you know, I, I'm I'm looking at television last night. Like, don't we have an original thought anymore? Right. Isn't there somebody that has a creativity? That's what. That's exactly why I love the art scene here in 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 Fort right. Myers and Southwest Florida. Yeah, 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 because there's actual people that think about what they're doing, and they don't mind being creative. And they have that attitude of, okay, this is my creation, like it or don't like it. Hmm. Oh, well, yeah.
1: You know, uh, just a real quick aside to give a shout-out to my daughter goes to middle school at Dunbar Middle School in oh, Fort Myers. Yeah. And the reason we picked it or one of the reasons we picked it is because of the band program there. Uh, the teacher started about 10 years ago, and he now has almost 300 kids in bands wow. at under him at that school. There's wow. only 1,100 kids at the school. Wow. He's got, when Gwen was in beginner band, she was one of 146 kids. She was one of 20 trombone
0: players
2: Whoa. In,
1: in
0: a middle school band.
2: Whoa.
0: (laughs) Whoa. Well, then it's funny you should mention Dunbar because my church, uh, Life Church Fort Myers, Pastor Deaton, how are you? My my church uh, has adopted Dunbar Middle School. Oh yeah, as one of the, one of the schools that they well, help out.
1: I'm sure that my daughter is benefiting from that support. Then so great. The,
0: the the staff believes in what they're doing. Absolutely, and that's the thing that I I was impressed with because we did a staff luncheon where we just uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Uh, before the 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 uh, uh, school season started. And they were just so appreciative of the fact that somebody's taking time out. Isn't it to great thank to have them. so much?
1: Yeah, I, I really. We've had a great time there. And by the way, if you're listening, Morel, you need to come on this show. I'm trying to get her band leader on this show, and he, he's been avoiding me.
0: He does have to come on this show.
1: <laughs> okay, let's get back. Uh, you, um, you're back in Detroit now. Okay, and you said you have some new horizons approaching instead of classical. Well, how well, did we turn was, down that road?
0: I was kind of. I was kind of turned off by the attitudes in Tulsa. And it get, got to the point where I really didn't want to do music. I had to come up with something else. What was something else real quick? I mean... I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea. I, I, and still to this day, because I've been doing it for so long, I have no idea. You never had to find out what it was.
1: Well, Thank cr- God. Cheers to that.
0: Okay. <laughs> I'm very happy to the fact that I never had to find find out what other callings in life that I had, um but I got back to Detroit and I was working for j c Penneys selling appliances for j c Pennies and this guy came through with his his wife, and he and I just talked you know because I'm pretty much an easy growing person to talk to, and as we were talking, I find out that he's a recording person, so oh. Well, okay, fine. He's trying to put himself back out there, and and there's nobody that anybody would have known about it unless you were in Detroit at the time, right? But I, I got with him, and I thought that, hmm, I'd like to see what was going on with that side. So he needs a keyboard player, and I could tool around on a keyboard. So okay, yeah, I'll I'll come play keyboard with you. And he was a keyboard player also, so I didn't have to carry the weight by myself. Mm-hmm. And got with him, and I learned. Two things. Number one, always find out what you're getting paid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And number two, never trust anybody. (laughs) (laughs) You you trust yourself and you trust your instinct and you trust the heart that you have, but don't trust anybody telling you what you should have. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing I learned from that period of time because we were doing jobs – Oh, we must have done in a nine ten month period of time. We must have done about five six jobs. Was this live stuff or recording? This is live stuff. This we're is live, stu- stu- live stu- stuff. Well, they 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 we were backing up their recording career. Mm-hmm. His well, husband and wife, Beverly and Dwayne, was the name of the group. And we got in there, and the guys that I was working with were great guys. You know, they they were good musicians on on top of everything else. But we all learned at the same time that Beverly and Dwayne was making money, and we thought that we were just doing it you know to further the career mm-hmm. the 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 company line that we i can 't stand is well, you know you can bring your crowd out here. well, no, you should have a crowd for me to come play to mm-hmm. and if you don 't have a crowd for me to play to, sorry, so we did the the last job we did we had gotten tired of doing all these jobs and not making any money actually the job before this mm-hmm. one. We had put on this one show that we was – it was they called it a four-wall. And four-wall is basically us doing it by ourselves with no one paying us to do it. So we sold tickets and we had a great crowd, 300 people or so, did a great show. It was Monday. So now we're, we're coming up on Monday and we're all getting together to have a meeting and have a paycheck. So we're all happy. Hey, we're getting paid today. For the first time, we're getting paid. Then all of a sudden, the check game got into my hands. And where I'm thinking there's going to be a couple of hundred bucks, the check was for $78. Hmm. So we're all sitting there looking at the checks like, $78? Why? Didn't we have 300 people in there at $25 a head or something? He said, and I quote, well, we had to pay our wardrobe person and our makeup person. And okay, but that has nothing to do. And that's the lesson I learned. Do your own deal. I see I hear so many people that get upset about getting paid for some place but somebody else is making more than them. No. Do your deal. You agree to what you're gonna do, that's where your commitment lies. Doesn't matter what anybody else is making. As long as you get out of the deal that what you're supposed to get, then it's a done deal. And from that point on, you know, people even to this day. Try that. Well, you know, I can have a band come in for fifty bucks a head for a four-piece band. Please go ahead and hire them, <laughs> because that's not what I'm going to work for. That's not what the people I know are going to work for. It's 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 ridiculous that I have to do that, but. Club owners now have no appreciation for what they're doing. There's some folks that are getting back in line and understanding that music is a big part of their business and it brings people in. But then there's the other ones that really don't care. And because and, and we can fault ourselves, musicians, we can fault ourselves for that because we have sat back and undercut each other so much that, you know, when the guy is saying, well, hey, I'm going to pay him 100 bucks. Well, you know, I'll do it for 75. Yeah. Then all of a sudden the guy loses the job. And it's not any And now leather. it's worth 75 and And it's worth $75. Yeah. You get what you pay for. Yeah. You, you know, get what you pay for. You
1: know, I learned that lesson, um, how it works throughout the whole art Art world, the whole creative process world, where because of my time at the Alliance, Mm -hmm. you know, people would throw events and then they would ask people whether they be visual artists who are going to live paint or musicians, and they'd say, "Well, come and they'd expect them to do it for free because of the exposure they can get. The
0: exposure, that's the word.
1: But you know, you got to support artists. You got to make it worth. You got to make it worth doing. Otherwise, we're not going to have art.
0: Exactly, exactly. And you're talking to a product of an art music teacher. So believe me, my 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 oldest sister was an artist in college and all that kind of stuff, and so I've had art in my family and in my life all the time. That's why I appreciate what Eric is doing. I appreciate what what SBDCA or <laughs> DAC is doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Alliance, I, and people don't really realize how much of a jewel these places are because you can't really get them in other places unless you know somebody or you know something or, you know, you know where the underground is where you're pushing the buttons and you get <laughs> in. But that's why I love the, the the scene here in Southwest Florida is the fact that there's people that care about what they do. And not only do they care about it, but they embrace it. And, you know, I because of... Because of uh, Fort Myers Film Festival, I've met a lot of people in this area. I really have. And there's a lot of people that have heard me Mm -hmm. because of that. And it's it's still amazing because I still have young filmmakers and young people coming up and saying, well, how do I do this? And the first thing I tell them is, especially if they're a filmmaker, the first thing I tell them is, you need to go to TGIM (laughs) and you need to meet some people. And just go in there networking. Check out what the independent films are doing. Just see for yourself what's going on. Don't listen to anybody else. Just see for yourself. And I've had – I've now, because of – oh, seven years we go back?
1: Uh, well, I've been there seven. It's eight years the film festival has been doing it. So, so seven I think years, you were yeah. there about the first year I showed the up. The second, second year, yeah. Second the, season well, was my the, first season. The
0: first, the first season, yeah. The the first season that you were there was the first one I came yeah, in. Yeah, seven years. Wow wow, ooh, we've seen marriages, we've seen children, we've seen, <laughs> I <know>. oh, man. <laughs> it just, it's just floors me every time I think about it. But because of, of, of what they've done for the art scene here, it's just gotten better, yep. and it continues to get better because one thing that I do like is the fact that some folks, e some folks don't rest on their laurels. They, also, they have to go and see what the next step is. What's mm-hmm. going to be better? How can I make this better? What can I do to increase the the love of this art form? Mm-hmm. And the, that, those to me are the more successful people. You may not make much money from, you know, advertising and all that kind of stuff. But you got to stay true to yourself. Yeah. And if you stay too true to yourself, somebody's gonna like it. Yep. Somebody is gonna like it. I'm I'm blessed. I'm I'm blessed in the fact that not too many people don't like what I do. Yeah. And if they don't like it, I would rather them say, Hey, I didn't like that as opposed to smiling in my face and saying, Oh, it was great, I'm never coming back. But it was great. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes, uh right
1: on. Um okay, time for your third song. Third song. Third song.
0: This is this is the one. This is the one that changed. This is the game changer song. Okay. I was in in another band that didn't make any money, but our bass player was a fanatic for yes. Okay. A fanatic for yes. So much of a fanatic that she traveled over to London to meet. John Anderson and and Chris Squire and and all the guys. Well, part of her love for Yes kind of got to me because at the time that was Rush, uh, Generation X, Yes, a whole bunch of other groups that were being – Emerson Lake Palmer Mm -hmm. because they were using orchestral things to make the music. With the drum kit. Great crossover for you. Excellent crossover (laughs) for me. Excellent crossover for me. And so the one guy that stood out to me was a guy by the name of Rick Wakeman. And Rick Wakeman was the premier keyboardist in my estimation. I mean there was a lot of guys that went through the band. But Rick Wakeman was the guy that that influenced me more than anything else. Um, I enjoyed him with Yes, but then he decided to have a solo career. And in his solo career, I only know of two albums that he came out with. One was – the first one was The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. And the second one was Journey to the Center of the Earth. Okay. And Journey to the Center of the Earth involved – when he took it on tour, involved an entire orchestra, rear screen projection, the whole shot. Magnificent production. Six Wives of Henry VIII – it was an album, an actual album, like with cover art and stuff. Right, And the inside of the cover was Rick Wakeman and his keyboard set up. I had never seen anything like that before. Mm. We're talking about multiple keyboards all around him. Just that picture was mind-expanding for it, you. It, it was because I'm thinking, you know, and then I heard Six Wives. And once I heard Six Wives, I'm like, oh, That's that's why you have all that stuff up there because this is at the time when nothing was was small. So (laughs) when he wanted to play a grand piano, he had a nine-foot Bosendorfer grand piano up there. When he wanted to play organ, he had a Hammond B3 with full Leslie right next to him. And he was standing in the circle with all that, not to mention the prerequisite fifth of Jack Daniels that had to be nearby. (laughs) But... The man was so fluent in what he did. Actually, all the guys of Yes were so fluent in what they did. That's where I could—Steve Howell, that's what I was thinking of for guitar. Those guys were so accurate, so precise, and so musical that it just floored me. You know, I, I was a Yes fan way beyond Roundabout and Fragile and all that kind of stuff, close to the edge, all that stuff. I found the Six Wives of Henry VIII. And I I think I wore the thing out. But the first one that impressed me was – you have to learn the history of, of Henry VIII, but he had six wives. And the first one was named Catherine. And Rick Wakeman wrote a piece for Catherine. And, of course, he wrote subsequent pieces for the other five wives. But Catherine's piece was the one that got me just because of melodies, thematic situations – uh, themes and variations, all in the same spot, and that really did it for me. That was that. That's when I became a keyboard player because I wanted to do exactly that. I think I got to about as, as close to five keyboards around me at one point. Hmm. Then I realized I don't want to take all this crap around with me all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Minimalized. <laughs>
0: yeah. Thank God for 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 engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, because now what I can get one keyboard to do. I had twenty sitting sitting around me, so I just really I got a chance to send a little uh, video to Rick Wakeman oh, yeah. through uh, Leslie Coles with the Melody Makers. Uh-huh. We we saw just as a background uh, last year's festival had Melody Makers as the premier film for mm-hmm. the opening of the festival. And I was just enamored the, the whole time, just sitting there. All these guys that I saw come up from Jethro Tull all the way around. Here they are. And they're actually talking about what they did then. And realized, I didn't realize how much of an influence they had on music, on people that enjoyed music, people that bought music. Mm-hmm. And so I got a chance to talk to Leslie, the, the director, producer of it. And Rick Wakeman was in that movie. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, oh, Rick Wakeman? You, you really enjoyed Rick Wakeman? She said, I can send him a message. I'm like, really? So I was fanboy right at that moment. It was like, okay, yes, I'm over 50, but man, you are so great. <laughs> <laughs> you did this for me. You did that. And, and I, 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 I don't even know if he saw it or not. Right. It, it didn't really matter. Just the fact that you here's this connection, and, and this takes me back to my past. And it just brought everything full circle. It really did for me. But Rick Wakeman, Catherine the Baron. All right, this
1: is this is the beginning of Al Hollands' life as a keyboardist. Let's listen. I love it. It's a kaleidoscope.
0: It is. It's <laughs> very good. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is because you have so many different styles going on at the same time, and there's one guy behind it all. Yeah so you know we we got a jazz influence we've got a rock influence we've got classical influence i mean it it was my smorgasbord it really yeah. was that was my buffet do you play it i i did i did it one time i you can take all the lines and play them out individually but try
1: to do it all at once and jump between sounds and voices and things like that yeah well little, i've done
0: little, i've done that yeah i've done that in my career following playing cello um because I'm, a, I'm kind of a utility player when it comes to stuff like that. If I hear a hole in the system, then, then I need to fill that hole in, or maybe not. The silence is golden, so it may not be necessary then. Yeah. So over, there's always that fine line between overplaying and playing the right thing. But that was it for me. I mean, that, that did it. He, all the technique, all the, the sounds, Electronic sounds even. I I never even really got into electronic sounds until –
1: That goes right from one to the other and back and forth, from the analog to the electronic.
0: Exactly, exactly. And we're talking about from uh, the Bosendorfer grand piano Mm -hmm. to a Hammond organ to an ARP 2600 synthesizer to a vocoder to (laughs) – and the list goes on and on and on. I mean just the list alone of the keyboards that he had on that project – Took up like the whole back page of, yeah. of the album, but that was that was the thing. That that's what got me. Hmm. You need to, and um, maybe we'll we'll hook up and go
1: see his uh, organ. But we had a, a guy on the show a few weeks ago who lives in Fort Myers. Um, he has a twenty-five rank pipe organ from a theater in San Francisco, built into his house. Whoa! And he has five grand pianos, two of which are hooked up to his pipe organ that he can play remotely. And he loves to have people over to check it out. So Whoa. you're coming with me and Richard. Uh, oh, we got to go.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just sit there with my mouth open the whole time. I want to see you play. I want to see you
1: play only you on the pipe organ. <laughs>
0: you know, when I got when I finally sat down Done. to a pipe organ, <laughs> the only time that I, I, I sat down to a full rank pipe organ, I tried to do the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. And I just realized that pedals were not my thing. Uh-huh. Bass pedals are not my thing. I could do the registers and, and change the sounds. But that was, again, going back to what I was talking about being with the Detroit Symphony. And around the Detroit Symphony, Virgil Fox was an organ virtuoso. And he would travel literally with two 25-rank organs, pipe organs— and one would be at the at the um, facility, the venue he's playing at, and the other would be on its way to the next facility.
1: Wow. Talk about having some sway with the
0: crews there. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, it was so cool. And then he always made sure that nobody was in the hall when he wanted to do his, his sound check. And, and I understood why later on because he never wore his tuxedo. He just had on his Tuck shirt and some boxers <laughs> 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 and did it all that way. So I was able to stand deep into the wings and watch him work. Wow. And just amazing, amazing. As a matter of fact, his recording of the Chicago and Fuga D Meyer is definitely one of my favorites. Um, I, that, that job meant so much to me because I got a chance to see so many different people. Stevie Wonder, Teddy Pendergrass, um, uh, Two weeks before they died, Leonard Skinner. Oh wow! Yeah, and I kept wondering. I saw the road cases and kept looking around, going, "Linyard Skin. What's the Linyard Skinyard? <laughs> Freebird. why I don't know anything about that. All birds should be free. <laughs> yeah, 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 free them all. You know, but but then then I heard about the band's demise, and. I started researching them then. And I realized that these boys are good,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know. And and that's pretty much the way my musical career has gone. It's like, oh, that's really good. I enjoyed that. Hmm. Okay. Let's go ahead and do with this, you know. And that's that. That helps me to make decisions now in my life in my career. Is the fact that I can now do things because I want to do them as opposed to have to do them. Yeah. You know it doesn't mean mean i'm I'm rich by any straight by any stretch of the imagination, but i can I've been doing it long enough that I can pick and choose so this is where the we go back to full circle to the to the the laid back comment i I pretty much have been around a lot of guys, and a lot of the guys that I've been around who don't have anything to prove are some of the most laid back people ever. Uh one of my one of the best guys I ever knew was a guy by the name of Bill Pinckney and he was one of the last original drifters. And I watched this man we were in uh Kentucky at this showroom that looked like a Las Vegas showroom with the banquettes and the, the, the big booths and everything. And Bill had early he lived in South Carolina and he early in that day when he was on his way up to Kentucky, he ran into a deer. Didn't hurt himself not that bad. He just, you know, was a little shivering. He came into the crowd, and, you know, <laughs> we we did do a good job when we got there. So we got to the point that the first time we were working on the show with the Drifters, they are like, yeah, you guys going out there. Well, after we went out there and had the crowd going, they decided that, no, you guys, <laughs> no, you close the show, we'll go out first. Yeah. But Bill came out there. And I watched him because the magnificence of that kind of artistry always impressed me. Um, and he came out and he was he's telling the crowd, he said, yeah, well, I had a little accident earlier today. And, you know, I'm, I, I'd really like to meet you because I like to walk around and meet everybody. But I'm really not feeling that well right now. So I'm going to sit here on the edge of the stage. And if you want to meet me, come on up. I literally watched people stand in a line from where he was on the stage all the way back up the aisle, all the way around the back of the, of the theater, and just a chance to shake his hand. And I, it it was, it was mind-boggling to me. But I also realized, too, that if I don't treat it the same way as I would be talking to you, Mike, what's the, what's the point? You know, Johnny Carson had the greatest line when somebody asked him, say, well, are you are you overwhelmed by being on television? And this is back in his earlier days. And he said, "Well, look, I put my pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. I go to the bathroom when it's time for me to go to the bathroom. So the only difference is, is that I'm up here and you're back there." You know, but we need to be I think that's that's where my biggest gift is in talking to people is that I'm not talking at you, I'm talking with you. Mhm. So if I'm talking with you I expect to get some kind of feedback reaction from you and that's what mainly why I do what I do and how I do it. Hmm.
1: Well we are almost out of time. I have two more quick questions for you. Okay. Are there any songs that you – that people want you to play that you don't want to play or that you won't play <laughs> even? Because you probably – there's some I would think that at this point you've played them enough maybe. But
0: I don't know. What do you think? Well, if you talk to my wife, she will tell you that she doesn't have to hear any Platter songs ever again in life. She's
1: all up to there. With yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> she
0: she spent 20 years going on the road and hearing me and it, it doesn't thrill her anymore. But the songs – uh, I'm not a tenor voice. This is not a tenor voice, and in doing it, the songs were written for tenors, mm-hmm. sung by tenors, and you know I can do them. I have the range to be able to do them, but I would rather do things a little bit more in my range. So there's there's no songs that I wouldn't do other than stuff that doesn't really fit who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can do a country song. I can do a ballad. I can do a, a rocking song. I can do all this kind of stuff just because I'm comfortable with doing that. But there is no song that I can truly say that, that I avoid. There's, you know, the platter stuff, the stuff that's high-pitched. I really don't do it that often because after all this year, the voice is not as high as it used to be. But I'm, I love music. I, I, I just love music.
1: All right. Last question. If you could collaborate musically with somebody Ooh. of of all time. We are, we're not talking about somebody who's contemporary or even still alive.
0: The one person that, that influenced me more than anybody else in just talking to him for four and a half minutes was Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder had an a album out called The Secret Life of Plants. We couldn't figure out why, but it was still Stevie Wonder, so it didn't really matter. It was a hit record. And whenever he did a concert, it was usually at the Ford Auditorium. And I came out from the back, came up through the through, through the, the, the bowels of the building, up to the lobby, and he was just sitting there. And something just told me to go up and talk to him. And I went and sat next to him and talked to him for about four minutes, asking him how did he see music. And even though he had no recollection of what colors looked like, it was everything was a color to him. You know, this color made me mad. This color made me happy. This color made me sad. This color made me joyful. This, and that's where his music came from. He, he always, always kept a tape recorder by his bed. So if he had a, a moment where a song went through his head, he could automatically put it down and then later on flesh it out. But just in seeing his attitude. And knowing all the things that he's been through because, quite honestly, I was back there at the time that he was little Stevie Wonder and 13 years old playing harmonica for the Motortown Review. Ooh, that's a flashback. <laughs> but watching him grow and as a musician and become, and I don't use this word lightly ever, it's icon. He, he's a musical icon to me. He really is. And just the mere fact that he's just a guy from Detroit and a lot of the guys that are out here now one thing that is a problem with modern pop music is the fact that they have no anchor system they can't say well hey this is all because it's all because of the money you know let's make stacks okay we we don't want to make stacks we want to put out good music you could always count on a stevie wonder song to have a modulation or two or three in the course of the song there was always and I go back to the art concept. You always start with the foundation and then you color it in the way that you see it. You you don't start with the color first and then go, oh, "Okay, this is what we're going to do with it." No, it's the way it makes you feel. And if that's the way you feel, there's somebody else out there that will feel the same way, if not differently, if not better than the way you felt when you did the project. Hmm. So it all it all ties together for me. It truly does. Not to mention the fact that I've, I've been blessed. Uh, you know, I was able to go from three different bands to where I am now, and that's all. I we did the attraction, then we did the platters, and that was a good eleven, twelve years of my life. And now, as a solo artist, and that's it. That's it. I never had to be the mercenary of the business. Hmm. And there's guys around here that that are. Excellent, excellent musicians who have done the same thing that I've done, and they handle it the same way. I never like the guy that says, "Well, you know, I've got this. I've got the million-dollar house. I've got." It. No, that doesn't impress me. Sit down and play, and we can we can go from there. And you know, one of the, one of my favorite guys is a friend of mine, and he's in this area. His name is David Johnson. David Johnson is the bass player for Aaron Neville. And I've always admired David because of all the people he's met in his lifetime, all the people that he's met in his career. He is still one of the most humble people you ever want to meet. And that's that that's a win for me. Hmm.
1: Well, thanks, Al, for doing this. I've really Mike, enjoyed thanks, our conversation. Thanks,
0: thanks Richard. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Al. I I, I I do appreciate it because I was looking forward to this for a long time, and I'm glad we got it done. Yeah, well, we are too. Thank you. Thank you.
1: We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. The show's co-creator and producer is Richard Chin-Kui. Tara Calligan is our online content producer. Chris Duffis is our executive producer. Our theme song was made by Dave Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. For this week's parting tune, I'm up in the tech booth at the Sydney and Byrne Davis Arts Center in downtown Fort Myers on any one of scores of Monday nights over the past seven years running the show for the Fort Myers Film Festival's TGIM that's thank goodness for Indie Mondays when we play short films that have been submitted for consideration to the festival for a live audience who along with a panel of local celebrity judges weigh in on the films during lively pre-show cocktail hour driven conversations which are led by the hosts Eric Raditz, our guest on episode 5 of this podcast and Melissa DeHaven who I'll have to get in to the guest chair, too, one of these days. Anyway, each Monday night opens promptly at 7 p.m. when I turn down the lights and play our opening video and theme song, which was created by a local artist named Elijah Gromalski. Sorry if I got that last name wrong, Elijah, who was always around during the early years of the festival. He made this song for us. At this point, I'd like to thank. this song is viscerally connected to the first Monday of the month for quite a few of our regular attendees, like a Pavlovian bell that a couple hours of good times with good people, all in support of independently produced films and art in general, are about to commence. Well, as we alluded to during this week's episode, Al Holland and his wife Cheryl have been key figures throughout our now eight-year run as a film festival. Al has, more than a couple of times, stolen the show with his witty insights and general approach to being, not to mention the times he's graced us with his music. This is the TGIM theme song, which you can hear on the first Monday of the month between August and April. Right around seven o'clock at the Sydney and Burn Davis Art Center. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening.
2: The weekend's gone and it's not the same. Cause Mondays are so damn mundane. Wish I had something to do tonight Well, what once felt wrong now feels so right Watching indie films on a Monday night With my friends while I I intellectualize Thank God that it's Monday Thank God that it's Monday God that it's Monday yeah. Thank God that it's Monday. Will I love it? Will I hate it? Will I watch it and debate it? Those critics with their movie eyes Will they make me laugh and they make me cry? Some so bad that I want to die but instead I pass the mic and i intellectualize thank god that it's monday thank god that it's monday thank god that it's monday yeah thank god that it's monday
0: next time on Three Song Stories.